Father God, in keeping with what we just sang, we praise you this morning. We thank you, we lift you up, we magnify your name for having given your one and only son. And Lord God, if that truth for us is not one that we own, if it's just some kind of distant historical accent trapped in the pages uh, of a book that we're still investigating, Lord God, would you, in a way that only you can make it true, help that heart to understand what you've done through Christ? Heavenly Father, even for those of us that believe that we know, would you bring the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ even closer to us in a way that only you can do? Would you help us this morning, O oh God, to see the truth and the reality of your son's work on the cross in the pages of scripture this morning as we talk about the topic of generosity through the lens of 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Would you, Lord God, speak to and teach even the teacher? Would you open the hearts and the eyes of every single person in this room? Would you meet us at our respective situational and emotional and intellectual addresses? You know exactly how we are wired, what we need to hear, how we need to see, and how we think. Lord God, would you remove just every barrier that there is to truth? Whether it's barriers of past church hurt, whether it's barriers of comprehension, whether it's barriers of personal fatigue because we worked a long shift last night, whether it's barriers of preoccupation for some responsibilities that we have after church today, Lord God, whether it's barriers of just total discomfort because we've never been in a church before or it's been a long time since then, Lord God, would you meet us? Would you meet us, Lord God, and pull down every thought and imagination that exalts itself against, uh, Lord God, the name of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord God, in the form of faithlessness, a recent situation that we may be going through that is cramping out and crowding out, Lord God, what used to be a hearty and robust relationship with you, but now, Lord God, the cares of this life are screaming louder than ever, and we desperately need to hear from you like never before. Lord God, would you quiet those other voices? Just for a moment, would you sanctify and, and just carve out for you, Lord God, this time that your people may be edified and filled with your word. This we ask in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to focus our time on verses 16 through 24. If you've been tracking with us for quite some time, you'll know that we are in the third message in our series entitled Generous, and we've been exploring the biblical contours of biblical generosity. Exactly what does it look like? Um, we also, um, uh, in this series, have been looking at not just generosity from the perspective of dollars and cents, but also through the lens of the gospel, because I believe that that is the biblical um, viewpoint that the Lord would have us to have on this particular topic. In the very first message, Pastor Ryan talked to us about this whole um, cultural idiom of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and how it is that many of us, every one of us at probably some point in our lives, have experienced a miscarriage, a miscarriage of the topic of generosity. We've seen either dubious uh, uh, examples or maybe just some gray illustrations in the, pe in the lives of people of, of whether it be mismanagement of funds or, or, or just something Lord, that, that has just kind of set us on edge when it comes to the topic of giving. And we wanted to keep the two of those, church and giving, gospel and giving, spirituality and, and material things like money, we wanted to keep them as far apart as we possibly could. 
Some of us have wanted to keep them so far apart that we've even begun to mismanage and misquote the scriptures and say things like, well, you know, money is the root of all evil when the Bible actually says the love of it is. And so I want to help us this morning to uh, recover the baby and indeed throw out the bathwater. All of that dirty, um, old, lukewarm, less than sanitary thinking that every single one of us has ever had in our lives concerning this topic so that we can be freed up um, to have a biblical and gospel-centered view of giving. Let's read our text together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 through 24, you should be there by now. I'm reading from the ESV. There's a couple of places where I recognize that might be some various versions in the room that differ on certain vocabulary, and I'll maybe highlight those for you if I'm aware of them. But verse 16 begins this way. It says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care, which my Bible says, some of your Bibles may say diligence, but the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going uh, to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending uh, the brother who is famous uh, amongst all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. Some of your Bibles may say, whose praise is his preaching of the gospel amongst all the churches. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us and carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself to show our goodwill. Uh, we will take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift, the CSB says about the size of the enormity of the gift that is being ministered by us. We aim uh, at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but now who is more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches of, for the glory of Christ. The churches, which is the glory of Christ. What's happening in the text today? So if you've not been here before, the churches in Jerusalem, a cluster of churches in another region have fallen on hard times. Deep poverty is striking all of the churches in that region. And so other churches are collaborating to collect an offering. And this is Paul's letter to the Corinthian saints, encouraging them to participate in a very hearty way in this giving as well. Because at this particular time, they are experiencing great abundance. And he is calling them by way of the strength of the gospel and also uh, just on the earnest of what they have received from God themselves to now help pick up some of the slack that is being felt by these other churches economically. Again, so this is taking funds from this church who had started, according to earlier texts that we read, who had already set aside over a year ago some funds, but had not followed through on doing that. So we talked about execution and aspiration last week, how sometimes we can have a heart to do something, but we don't necessarily put our hands with the diligent plan to do it. And so we talked about that last week. And so here we are now, a continuation of the same conversation as to why the Corinthian saints ought to participate. You'll notice that there are at least three people that are coming and participating in the gathering of this offering. You've got Titus, uh, another person who is famous amongst the churches for preaching, and then a third brother who is being sent. 
Uh, obviously, it's going to be, I guess they're going to be carrying a sizable amount, which is why he says we don't want anybody to be ashamed or to blame us in the way that we're handling this. So we're sending these three brothers so that all things can be done uh, with integrity. That's kind of what's happening in the history of the text. Um, now, furthermore about history, how many of you have history with Sam's Club? Anybody? Anybody been there? What about BJ's Wholesale Club? That's my personal favorite, BJ's. You got BJ's people in the back. BJ's represent. Uh, what about uh, Costco? Anybody? Costco? Okay, Costco probably got the heaviest representation. One of the things that I love about all of these uh, wholesale um, uh, uh, venues is uh, occasionally they'll get uh, what I consider to be maybe a big delivery or they've gotten a new supply of something, a fresh supply. And rather than just having it to sit in the back room and spoil or simply to have it sitting on the shelves and hope that you find it, they will then commission a group of special servants. You know who they are. These people who will come out with these little um, hot trays or plates and they'll stand there with the little uniforms on and they have these free samples. Anybody experience the free samples at your respective wholesale club? That's right. The free samples, like, you know, I, I'm not even a tiny sausage guy, but I see a plate full of them with some barbecue sauce, with a toothpick through them, and maybe with some cheese or something like that. I'm gonna check that out. What could I lose? I go on and I, I go to another section and somebody else has got, you know, maybe some pimento cheese on another type of cracker I've never tried before with a, you know, maybe it's garnished with a little celery or maybe even some jalapeno. I'm not even a big jalapeno guy, but this thing is free and it's got a toothpick in it and it's well being presented to me. It's on display. Why not? And so I go on and I, I do whatever else I came in there. I got my 24-pack of toothpaste, you know what I mean, 30,000 pounds of palm olive and some dial soap. You know what I mean? A stack of notebooks for the whole community, whatever I came in there to get. You know how those wholesale clubs do. And then, you know, on my way to the register, I'm like, she just restocked a tray of tiny sausages. Why not? Get a few more. What's happening in that moment? What's happening in that moment is that those clubs, those warehouses, or those, these wholesale clubs have said, we want to put on display in a very generous way something that we have in abundance. We refuse to let these items that we have just be stored up and tucked away behind those big gray doors that swing like that, that no one in the public is supposed to go behind. We're going to bring it to you. We want you to see it clearly. Well, I believe that there is something like that happening in today's text. I believe that, that the, the, the title of the message is the proof is in the pudding and not pudding that you would eat. But the proof of generosity of what God has done in your life is in, begins with what God has put in you. What has he stored up? Because the text begins by saying that he thanks God for having put in the heart of Titus the same care for God's people that he has for them as well. And so we come to know that, that good generosity, biblical generosity, begins with a, ba a foundation of God having made the first move of putting care in our hearts. Now, we've, we've all seen people who give or who, who write big checks. We've seen people who, who give donations, who, who drop off tons of clothes at the goodwill. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they care about the recipients. It could be they just care about more closet space or they care about a tax write-off or they just care enough about the circumstances to not want to look at it and just get that out of their hearts and minds. But, but real generosity done in a biblical way begins with a deposit that God makes in us. And I believe 
that the, the, the tension of today's text and the problem that's being solved is that the Corinthian saints have a casual view of giving. It's not the kind of view that, that, that's on the, it's not on the right shelf. It's a very casual view. They're a church that lives in abundance. And as with anything that, that is in abundance, it's oftentimes taken for granted. And so they, they have a casual view and he's calling them up to view their generosity as not like the same stuff that we do to our servers at our respective restaurants, right? Where my level of generosity is contingent upon their service. Oh, I was impressed by that. You see that she memorized all of our orders and there's 17 of us. That's tip worthy. I'm not only going to pay my bill, but I'm going to put in a little extra. I'm going to bless her. Well, that's not what's happening in biblical generosity. Is it some kind of tip that we give over and above because we feel like we've paid our bill because we enjoy a service? Biblical generosity comes from a place of care. Care for those who are receiving, even if I don't know who they are. And so the proof is in the pudding. Where do we get this from? In the very first line of the, of the scripture we read, he says, I thank God for having put this care in Titus's heart. But in the last line, in verse 24, he says, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about these men. So if you really care about these churches, if you really do love them, show some proof. I believe that giving is an act of God's grace, which is a word used right here in the scripture. I believe, if I believe that giving, if I believe that giving is an act of God's grace, then I will put just as much effort in my giving as I do in other aspects of my Christian living. If you could observe my life on silent film, it would take you no time to figure out what I'm serious about. Because without me saying anything, you would see my doings. You would see the stuff that I devote myself to, the, the places where I spend time. You would see how early I get up and what I get up for how late I stay up and how late I stay and what am I doing with those additional hours that I'm trying to carve out of my day. And you'll be able to observe from your life as well as from my life, what are the things that I believe are the most serious uh, uh, aspects of the Christian life? You come into my office and you see a litany of books and the latest of Bibles. You look on my computer programs and you would see my search history. You would see the things that I'm devoting to. You would see the things that you're devoted to. So if I believe that giving is indeed an act of God's grace, then I will put just as much effort on my giving as I do other aspects of my Christian living. I will not come to church with the tip model mentality. And again, I call that out because it lives, it, res, it resides in every single one of us because this is the culture in which we are immersed and baptized. But let's take a deeper look. In verses 16 through 7, 17, he says, thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care. The word earnest is used four times. We're going to get there in just a moment. And so because God had put the same earnest care in Titus's heart, he didn't even have to be told to do this. It says that he went of his own accord. He was then motivated to participate in helping the churches that were suffering by way of the churches that were in abundance. I believe that one of the first major ideas here is this, that God wants us to put on display what has been in our own lives put on deposit. Just like BJ's and Sam's Club and Costco, they have refused to let that stuff just live in storage and say, hey, we got it. No, they want the world to know. They want the public to know what it is that they have to offer and provide. And I believe that God wants us to, to put on ready display what he has deposited in us. 
Just in case you forgot, the, 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 the vision of this church is we want to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the, the gospel. And so, God, you have loaded us up with the gospel. You have stored it in us. Let us now display it. People won't even know what the gospel is unless we display it. And so here in the, in the Corinthian church, it says, look, there's a level of care that has been deposited. How do we display it? Well, generosity is one among many of those ways that it is displayed. Look back at even our prayer text in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and following. It says, what shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has made an initial installment that continues to pay dividends throughout our lives, on and on and on. This is the deposit. But that deposit isn't just staying there locked up in some savings account with no interest in our lives. This deposit continues to pay on and on. What does it do? Because the Bible tells me that once the Holy Spirit lives in my heart, he's in there actively rearranging furniture and teaching me how to live and teaching me how to love God and how to love my fellow man. So much so that, that Jesus would say these words in Mark chapter 12, verse 31, when someone would ask him what the two great commandments are, he would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment is this. Yet you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no greater commandment than these. Well, how can I love my neighbor as myself if I don't love myself well or I don't know how to love at all? This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes residence in the believer, rearranges the stuff in my heart that's interrupting how I love God so that I know how to love him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then teaches me how to love myself properly. Because there is a version of self-love that isn't sanctifying. It's very secular. Take a look at um, uh, this text here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. There'll come a time when people will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and unholy, heartless, unpleasing, slanderous, out of control, with no self-control, not loving good, treacherous and reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Oh, wow. Having the appearance of, so they'll look godly? Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. So what is the, what is the power that God gives that causes our love to not look like that? You see, secular love loves what it sees in the mirror, but sanctifying love loves what it also sees in the window. It can love what it sees in others and loves what's happening outside. Sacred and sanctifying love teaches me how to love God with all I've got. And it's not, it's not, it's not easy to do, but it teaches me just incrementally how to gain in this area, a gain strength in loving God with everything that I have. And then it says, now, let me show you how to properly love yourself and as you are simultaneously loving God and then loving yourself well, then or as simultaneously the Bible is teaching us how to love others and how to extend ourselves. Why is this important? Because this great effort that Titus is taking on is not minor. Titus is traveling some 200 miles because he cares about what's happening in Jerusalem and what's happening in Macedonia and, what he, and what's happening in Corinth. He cares deeply. He cares enough to travel 200 miles. No bullet train, no bird, no Venmo, no cash app, no wire. 
no, mail me a check. He has to go and get it. He has to make this appeal. That's the kind of earnest care, the kind of love that calls him to extend himself on behalf of others. I was um, talking with um, Tasia. Um, are Tasia in here? Where you at? Oh, there you are, Tasia. You remember the conversation? We were, we were talking about how in our older age, we get stiff. And some of the injuries that we encounter are sometimes we extend ourselves uh, in a way that we're not ready for because we've not been stretching and the deep need to be further stretched. And I believe that one of the things that God does to us in generosity is he teaches us how to stretch and how to extend ourselves beyond the borders that we would normally do. Initially, when we start stretching, if anybody in here does stretch, you maybe you're a, a yoga practitioner, or maybe you just do some other type of post-workout uh, stretching, but you'll know that the first time you stretch, it seems near impossible to reach some of the feet, reach your feet, or reach some of the feet of even what the person in the video is displaying. But over time and with practice, making incremental gains in flexibility, you begin to take what was impossible and now that kind of stretching becomes enjoyable. I remember when I used to never be able to, <laughs> no, nah, we're not about to, to do a, a stretch, but, 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 but this is the same thing that happens in generosity. When care is working at my heart and I'm being incrementally transformed in the way that I love God, love self, and love others, I'm then able to extend myself. Or in other words, when God's kind of care is kindling in our hearts, we don't struggle to stretch ourselves on behalf of others. There's a new flexibility that I discovered that I never knew I had. And it's not a secular flexibility. I'm not just trying harder. I'm doing so because I've been transformed by regular reminders of how much reach and extension God made toward me in the giving of his son. Verses 18 through 21. Verse 18 says, with him we are sending the brother who is famous amongst all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. I think this is strategic. Now remember, there's three people being sent for this gathering. You're sending a brother who is famous amongst all the churches for his preaching. I believe the reason that that brother, who is namely Apollos, most likely Apollos, is being sent is because of the problem that was discovered at the, with the Corinthian saints highlighted in the first letter. You see, in the first Corinthian letter, if you remember, they were a church that was rich in the gifts, but robbed by deep immaturity. And over and over again, the Apostle Paul spent a great deal of time helping them understand how the spiritual gifts that they have been given have come from God and they needed to be stewarded in a way that was righteous and honorable before God. And one particular classification of gifts that they adored, that they idolized, was the oratory gifts. So much so that the Apostle Paul, in chapter 2 of his letter, had to remind them, when I came in amongst you, I claimed to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, so that your faith would not rest in the oratory abilities of men, or in my words, or in the excellency of speech, so that your words, your faith wouldn't rest in how well I could say it but in just the brass tacks of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. This is, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right? The reason that he has to say that is because they were infatuated by people who could speak well, who could preach well. They were infatuated by that particular expression of grace. So then what's the point of sending one like an Apollos? I believe that God wants us to see the same grace that provides great preaching is also promoting great giving. 
It's the same grace. The Bible tells us that we ought to be good stewards of God's manifold grace. In other words, his grace has multiple folds. It has multiple expressions in the way that it lays itself out in the life. But it comes from the same place. It comes from God. In the Hellenistic or Greek development of the word grace, because I want you to understand this, that the first audience who received this would have been reading this letter, and they would not have seen the word gift in one place, act of grace in another, or, or, or grace in another place. They would have seen one word. They would have seen the word charis. The word charis is the Greek word for grace, but the word is also the Greek word for gift. In other words, the, the charis in the Hellenistic mind, their secular understanding would have been a superior person or an emperor who freely gives to a lesser, a lesser person or like a peon. That would have been their first understanding of grace. But then the apostle Paul comes in and helps them to take their secular definition of grace and helps like, no, no, no. This isn't about an emperor having pity on a peon. This is your, this is the same, this is the kind of grace, no strings attached that God would extend to you. And it's the word charis. Does this sound like a, like a, like an English word, charis? Which one? Which one? Sounds like care. Keep going. It's spelled C-H-A-I-R-S. Charisma and Charity, very good, very good. I don't know what, did we just make a game? It's, it's not charades, but it's like, you know, like a theological version. Um, but, 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 but charis is this, is, is this endowment that is given by a, a superior to a would-be subordinate. But it's not just an endowment, it's also an empowerment. If you'll notice how grace is used within the sanctified context, it isn't just something that you could not get for yourself, it is also the simultaneous enablement to do something that you could not do in and of yourself. Therefore, the word grace is at times uh, uh, translated as a gift, a spiritual gift, a spiritual enablement, but it's the same base word. This is important for us to appreciate in this regard as I read this particular passage of scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in his first letter to them, beginning with verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, one of the gifts, but I have not love or care for God's people, I am just a noisy gong or a, or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, another big boy gift, and understand all the mysteries and have all knowledge, another cluster of gifts, and I have all faith, another big gift, so as to remove mountains, but have not love or do not have care for God's people, I am nothing. Oh, here it is, verse 3. If I give away all that I have, now that's, that's big generosity, right? And I deliver up my body to be burned. I give up all my stuff and I give up myself. But I have not care for those that I'm doing it toward. I gain nothing. It does not hit the cash register of heaven, so to speak. It does not hit the scales of God's judgment. It does not mean anything if I don't have care or love for God's people. So philanthropy from a secular perspective does not register in heaven if it is not predicated on an understanding of God's grace. We were in, uh, it was 2010, we had been preaching in South Africa for about 10 days. We were in a shanty town, not the nice section of South Africa. And uh, dirt floors, uh, homes, I mean, just thousands and thousands of acres look like boxcars and trains had exploded and people just picked up the pieces and tried to make houses out of them. And so we're in here preaching and I mean, water's coming through in the roof, like I said, floors, dirt, you're preaching. Not only do I have to stoop down because the ceilings aren't six feet or more, but, but you got to dodge raindrops in order to keep your Bible dry as you're trying to talk. 
we get done preaching and this brother comes up at the end of our trip who had been our host with this little fuzzy velvety looking blue box looked like uh looked like maybe it used to be a cross pen or something in there one of those fancy pens or maybe a mont blanc maybe who knows what was in there previously and i open it up and on the inside is a is a little pen with some it's yellow at the bottom and you click it like this to get blue to come out red or or green or whatever color you want to you know write in and at the top there's some water in there uh, with a little ship and when you turn it the ship go down this way and when you turn that way the ship go this way probably every bit of a dollar 75 cent somewhere at a local uh, store that I would go to but it meant the world to me because the generosity the grace that undergirded what that man was doing I understood where that was coming from that was an act of grace this man was giving me the best that he had to offer for what he thought would show me a high level of appreciation and I held on to that pen and that little fuzzy blue box for years and even today, it's getting airtime, right? That's over 15 years ago, or it's 14 years ago. And it's getting airtime today on behalf of that brother. I, don't, I can't remember his name, but man, I remember what he did because that was a supreme act of generosity. And I believe that there are those of us who sometimes preclude our participation in being generous because we don't believe what we give is really going to have a real impact on the problem. Well, that's not going to uh, uh, hit the bottom line. I don't have a lot of $5. I don't have but like a couple of coins. I don't have that much to give. This isn't, this isn't going to contribute anything. God isn't looking at the amount. He's looking at the grace and the earnestness, used four times in our text, the earnestness and the diligence and the heart that came behind it. Now, let us not masquerade heart behind holding back when we do have great abundance and we just say, well, Lord, you know my heart. No, no, not that heart. Do you hear me? You understand what I'm saying? Is that clear? So, so. In Romans chapter 12, look at this. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, Apostle Paul gives us another conversation on the gifts. Having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. Prophecy in proportion to their faith is service and according to our serving. And one, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts, let him, let him use it in proportion to his, his faith and exhortation. To the one who contributes, do it in generosity. So man, the, the, the heart to give is enumerated amongst a list of gifts. The one who leads, let him do it with zeal. And the one who shows mercy, let him do it with cheerfulness. But the Apostle Paul goes even further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he talks about the varieties of gifts that exist, same spirit, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. And then he goes further to explain what the common good lives like, looks like by giving us one of the clearest pictures of how the body of Christ is supposed to operate. He talks about how what the foot can't say to the hand and the hand can't say to the foot or the foot can't say to the head because it's not a head. Meaning that regardless of what grace you have received, you have a great role to play in contribution, contributing to the common good of the collective whole of the body. Regardless of which particular grace you believe that you have. I believe that, that, that we can learn from this that when we give graciously, we are not just collecting and offering, we are also connecting in unity. There is something that draws us together when we give generously because we are functioning out of God's grace, not just giving, if you will, a tip or just giving physical dollars. 
In verses 22 through 24, the final section, it says, And we with them are sending our brother, who has often been tested and found earnest in many other, in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever before because of the great confidence that he has in you. Now, so he outlines this other brother that's coming, and he tells us that Titus is his fellow, his partner and fellow worker, but then he gives us this, this phrase in verse 24, so give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about these men. Give proof. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe that God wants us to prove, he wants to prove both to us and through us the power of being collaboratively generous. He wants to prove both to us and through us the power of being collaboratively generous. How do we do this? By being intentional in our giving, by being consistent in our giving, by giving sacrificially and being prepared to give spontaneously. Now, just in case you say, Pastor Rod, you're starting to build up a lot of bathwater, man. I'm getting some bad memories here. I want to remind you of this. The Lord never calls us to do anything that he had made the first chess move. It is the Lord who intentionally called each one of us to him. It was not a generic all call. It was, it was specifically when Jesus cries out on the cross, you were in mine. It was God who, who, who not only intentionally, but also consistently, when you were resistant, still continued to appeal and convict and to locate you on your job and in your relationships and at the grocery store and sitting in your car and at the doctor's office, consistently seeking you out and going after you, showing you various aspects of his generous love. It was the Lord who sacrificially gave his son. He said, no more, we're not sending any goats. We're not sending any rams. I'll send my son. Sacrificial. I'll give him the best that I have to offer. And then he says, I'll give even spontaneously. Even after they've received my son, I'll continue in their lives to, to in very spontaneous ways show up and surprise them that they didn't even know that I was prepared to bless them in that way. God is the one who took the first move in initially, in, excuse me, intentionally, consistently, sacrificially, and spontaneously giving in our lives. But guess what else? You and I already give in this way to things that we care about. You start a new job. You want to know, do they have a 401k? So that you can intentionally and consistently, and even if it's a pinch, sacrificially give to it. If you've got little ones that are going to college, you got little ones that, that ain't even, you, 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 you aspire to have little ones. Some of you are beginning even now to plan in advance to consistently give or set aside something in a way where you can intentionally and consistently and even sacrificially give to the things that you what? That you care about. Even I, us, us, we, this is not you versus me, right? We collectively plan for spontaneous moments. We have jars that used to have jam and mayonnaise in our house that are now filled with quarters and change. We have, we have ashtrays or wherever you put your extra coins, stuff that you found in the dryer, you're putting it somewhere. You got a little account set aside for a rainy day because you want to be able to spontaneously give if necessary. So the same thing that God is calling us to do under the influence of his grace, we're already doing it as a function of our normal life rhythms. 
He's just saying, would you, would you bring those same disciplines into a, in, in, into, under the influence of the gospel? You know, oftentimes one of the questions that we get as a local church is, what denomination are we of? Who are we part of this or you're part of that? And our answer is yes, and here's why. Because we believe that the scriptures scream, not a particular name, but they scream collaborative generosity. And we want to collaborate with people who are doing things that advance the kingdom. Why? Because the Corinthian church cannot by themselves resolve what is happening in Jerusalem with the poverty of the other saints. But the Corinthians, along with the Macedonians, as well as other churches in the region, they can. There are certain things that collaboratively can be done in the kingdom that a church can never do individually. And therefore, we collaborate with the North American Mission Board so that both missionaries and, and seminaries and, and other agencies can be both birthed and sent and supplied and exist. We give collaboratively and consistently to the IMB so that missionaries without a thought of whether or not they will be supported can go do gospel work in regions all over the world. We give to Atlanta Metro Baptist so that other churches in the region who might be struggling can benefit from our abundance. We give to the SIN network. We collaboratively want to see people like Ben who was standing right here who has a heart to plant a church in Puerto Rico to be able to do it. And other people who, who want to worship in their own language in Spanish, they can do it right up there. Why? Because we collaboratively give to the SIN network. We can't do any of this stuff individually. Individually, we couldn't even fix our own roof or stripe our parking lot. It was the collaborative work of others that helped that work happen. The global missions offering that, that you will hear about in, in months or weeks to come, it allows missionaries all around the world, people who we can care about deeply, even though we've never seen, can do great work. SIN Network also participates in the resolution of, 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 of international emergencies. I want you to consider for a moment that some of you have probably heard about earthquakes in Nepal, and you're like, man, what do I do? What do I do? What is already being done? Collaborative giving into the SIN Network, actually into the, actually into the North American Mission Board, actually makes sure that missionaries on the ground in the region have the supply that they need to even respond to those emergencies. Things that you could not see, things that you could not touch, you only heard about them and your heart went out. Well, if you got earnest care, collaboratively giving locally impacts those things globally. But why do we do it? Do we do it because it's cool? Do we do it out of a mandate? No. We willingly choose to collaborate in these ways. But the, but the undercurrent of why we do it is because the gospel itself shows the most profound act of collaborative generosity you have ever seen. The Bible says that no one can come to the Son except he is first drawn of the Father. The Father draws us. And then it is the son who dies in our place, on our behalf, satisfies the father's wrath that is against us, pays the cost that should have been our cost. The son pays that cost, but God isn't finished. Then the spirit contributes by coming and living inside of us and according to the Bible, continuously testifies and reminds me that you are a child of God. You are a child of God. Gives 
gifts to each one of us, you are connected to the body. You are connected to the body. Reminds me of my sin, lifts me up, gives me the joy of the Lord, gives me access to the strength of God, unfolds the text of Scripture so that I'm not just reading it as an ignorant person. The Holy Spirit and God, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are continuously giving generously in the life of the believer. And then the Bible says that the same Holy Spirit who has come and deposited himself or been deposited in my life will be the same force by which each one of us who trust Christ will be resurrected. The ultimate and initial act of generosity that envelops all of our lives who are followers of Christ has been carried out by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was intentional. It, was, it is consistent. It is sacrificial. And you know what? Even sometimes it's spontaneous. And God is saying, would you just do a little bit of that in multiple areas of your life, not just the ones you love and like? And so I believe in much the same way that the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Corinthian saints who have fallen in love with some aspects of the manifestation of God's grace, in particularly the gifts and the oratory gifts like preaching. He says, I want you to get just as excited about giving as you do about the grace of God manifest in preaching. And I believe for each one of us, you got an area of your, of your Christian life that you're super excited about. If it doesn't include generosity, I want to, I, I just want to call you, call on you to do that. I want to call on me to do that. Can I pray for you? Father, in the name of Jesus, as we hear your word, would you search us as you say your word does and show us where we have loved one manifestation of your grace over another and almost to the negligence of others that are equally as essential. Lord God, if we are a person that needs an upgrade in our understanding of your grace when it comes to the area of generosity, because we struggle to do so intentionally, it's just part of our leftover mindset. Because we struggle to do so strategically or spontaneously or even sacrificially, or we struggle to do it frequently. We start out well, but then we fall off. Lord God, would you search us and show us the respective areas where we have not put on display the same grace and generosity that you have put on deposit in us through your work of your son and through your Holy Spirit. Would you show us those areas of our life that we will respond to you accordingly? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Also, if you're here today, and you're hearing the gospel for the first time, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time clear, and you say, hey, what is this business about the father draws and the son dies on our behalf, paying a cost that should have been ours to pay? If that's news to you, and you want to know more about that, what is it about this Holy Spirit who lives in us and testifies that we are the children of God, or that is the same power by which we'll be, raised, we'll be resurrected from the dead? If that's news to you, we would like to talk to you. If my prayer team is here, I'd love for you all to go to your respective places. And if there's anybody here who has not heard the gospel before, or you are not clear as to whether or not you really believe that, you're saying, Lord, I want to believe that, but, but my faith is struggling. If you're not clear on the gospel, or you have heard it clearly, and you want to move toward God because of his great generosity towards you, would you go see one of the members of our prayer team? They're standing along the back. We'd love to have some time with you. Amen. Let's worship him.